Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift it is to have your word before us. It is so precious to us. It is worth more than all the money we have in our bank accounts, than all the assets we could even own. It is worth more than all the money in this entire world because in your word we have your words, the words of a holy God, a powerful God, words that save us from our sins and give to us eternal life. Lord, we pray that you may give us wisdom as we look at your word this morning so that we may interpret it rightly and apply it to our hearts so that we live as your servants all the more boldly as a result of studying your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure how often you write letters to politicians, but I love writing letters to the politicians, and particularly the Prime Minister, letting her know what's on my mind and what I think uh, she should be doing. And this last, over this last year, I have had to write a few uh, concerning uh, a number of issues that have come up in our government uh, concerning homosexual marriage. There was homosexual adoption in the New South Wales government last year as well. And uh, even our local uh, politician here, I wrote to her uh, concerning abortion when she was in power because there were statements made about her in the media uh, that she was in favour of abortion. And uh, so I wrote to her and, and she clarified that the media had gotten it wrong, which is surprise, surprise, um, the media uh, hadn't reported quite accurately about her. Uh, but yes, I write to politicians all the time and we are invited by our uh, ministers of parliament to write to them and let them know what we think of what they're doing and encourage them to put into laws that are in accordance with what we want as the voters of this land. And it's something that people have done all through history, have written letters to those who are in power. And we see that even here in ancient Israel, we see that people are writing letters to people in power, and this time these letters are not being written in favour of Christianity like I try to do. These letters are being written in uh, disfavour of the people of God. These are letters written against God's people. So we're picking up here this morning in chapter 4 uh, from the text that we did last week where we looked at the people were not happy that the Israelites were back in the land and were starting to attack them. Now we see new attacks, fresh attacks, and these are attacks through letter writing. So I'll just uh, refresh your memories as to what is going on here uh, with the Israelites. If you remember that there was Abraham way back in Genesis, he had a son Isaac, then he had a son called Jacob who then becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel and they all end up in Egypt. And in Egypt they're in favour while Joseph is around, one of the sons of Israel. But then, of course, they get out of favour and uh, become slaves in Egypt. Then God brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus, brings them to the Promised Land. They have a brief detour, if you call 40 years brief, in the desert. They end up in the Promised Land. There they are. Some are faithful to God, but a lot of the time they are unfaithful to God, and eventually God judges them, takes them to Babylon, 
in exile and then they return to the land by God's grace and are now back in the land and are restoring the land and that is where we pick up in Ezra. They've been to Babylon, they're now back in their promised land and now the enemies are attacking them. And the way they attack them this week is by writing letters to those who are in power. And we see that in verses 6 through to verse 16, the verses that we're concentrating this morning in Ezra chapter 4. And so if you've got a black church Bible, I encourage you to have it open to page 464 as we look at verses 6 to 16 of chapter 4. And we see that there's actually three letters that these enemies of Israel write here to the kings. There's one in verse 6 where we see at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, that's the uh, king at the time, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. That's letter one. Obviously that one didn't make much of an impact. So they write another one in verse seven. And in the days of Artaxerxes, that's the son of Xerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. So that's letter number two. Now some people confuse letter number two with the full text of the letter that we have after that, but I do think that that is a separate letter in verse seven from what follows in verses eight through to verse 16 because we have different people mentioned as the authors of the third letter in verses 8 and 9. So whereas in verse 7 we've got Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil and the rest of his associates writing the letter. In verse 8 we have Reum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. So this is the second letter to Artaxerxes the king. And so then we see a list of who is involved in writing that letter. So they write one letter, doesn't work out, that's verse 6. They write a second letter, verse 7. Does that put them off? No, they write a third letter. And this is the letter that, uh, as we will see next week, is the letter that does uh, work up some opposition uh, to the people of Israel. And so this is the letter that I want to concentrate on this week, this third letter, and particularly the tactics that they use in this letter to bring about opposition to the people of God the tactics that they use, because the tactics that they use are still tactics that are used against the people of God today. The enemies of God are still around, and they still use these tactics, and I think we can learn from this letter what these tactics are and how to best resist them. And so the first way that these enemies attack in this letter is by attacking God's people as a powerful group. That's my first main point this morning. Enemies attack God's people as a powerful group. And we see that in verses 8 to 10. We see who writes the letter. Verse 8, Reum, the commanding officer, and Shimsai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Reum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and officials over the men from Tripolis, Persia, Erech and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honourable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in trans-Euphrates. This is not one person writing one little letter to the king like I do when I write to the politicians. I'm just one in the crowd. Sometimes I put Jill's name at the end of it, but uh, I'm trying, I'm, I do get her permission when I do that. But uh, yes, this is not just one person. This is a group of people. 
And that is often what God's people do. They come, uh, God's enemies do. They come as a group against his people. And so there's quite a group of them there. There's uh, men from Tripolis, Persia, Erech and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa and the other people whom the great and honourable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. A lot of people are involved in this letter. And are these people just the, people, the, the masses or are they important people? No, they are important people. We see that there. Who are they? Verse 9, we've got a commanding officer. We've got the secretary. We've got judges and officials over the men of Tripolis, Persia, Erech and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa. We've got people who are powerful people there who are writing this letter. These are not the masses writing a letter in. They use their qualifications to try and sway the king to go against God's people. And this helps. As I said before, I try to put other people's names on the letters that I write. You, If you get more people with you, we sign petitions to try and sway. And we also, if we can, try and include any qualifications that might push the person in a direction that we want um, them to go in. I rarely use my title doctor, but when I write to parliament, to politicians, I always sign off as Dr Joel Radford and to try and push them in a particular direction. And when I wrote to our local MP about abortion, I mentioned Joshua and Philippa in it as uh, my children and, uh, and how they're involved in my decision about this. And my wife was there as well. I put her name in my letter there as well. We do that because it does sway people. And the enemies of God know this. They use that power and they still do it today. Clever, powerful people will come against you as a Christian and they will come as a group. They still attack you in this way. They will come with their fancy titles and qualifications. They will come with their important jobs like politicians and lawyers, come against Christianity, and they will come with all their money, all the wealth that they have, and they will try to shut you up as a Christian because they are enemies of Jesus Christ. They are enemies of God. So what do you do in that situation? Well, just don't be intimidated by titles and power. They're not that significant. PhDs, doctorates, they can be given out to anyone who works hard enough and pleases the right people. They gave me one, after all. Don't be entitled, intimidated by that title of DR in front of a name or any other title that people pop in front of their name. Don't think that that is a reason to dismiss Christianity or to be intimidated. And don't be intimidated by power and money. People may have a lot of power. They may have a lot of money. But they don't always get their way. Don't be scared of the enemies of God just because of who they are. And don't be intimidated by the group tactic of them coming as a group against you and so you fear them more because there's so many of them. Don't be intimidated. I encourage you to group up yourself. Group with the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have for encouragement and support as you fight against the enemies of God. Be a part of a local church. Get encouragement from them. You're not called to be a Christian on your own. You have people to support you, just like the enemies have people to support them. And, of course, group up with God. Remember who is on your side. 
I love that verse in Romans 8 that says, If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can? If you've got Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the creator of the world on your side, the one who sustains your enemies, then what have you got to be intimidated by? Why should you be scared of them with all their money, all their power, and all the fancy titles that they have in the front of their name and all the people that they may be able to gather on their side? If it's just you, you don't even have the, a church, you don't have brothers and sisters in Christ, you've still got God. Why should you be intimidated? That's the first tactic, is by coming as a powerful group. The second one is that enemies attack by calling God's people's names. And we see that in verse 12. Once we get into the substance of the letter there, verse 12 says, The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. They start right off the bat, start calling the Israelites' name, names, calling them rebellious, calling them wicked. And people still do that today. That tactic is still used against Christianity against God's people. They will call us names. They will call us wicked. They will call us stupid. They will call us fools. They will call us idiots. They will come against us and call us names, just like they did here in Ezra. So what do you do in that situation? Don't worry about names that people can call you. That's the famous line, it's not from the Bible. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yes, words do hurt. That proverb doesn't sit in every case. But we shouldn't let the names that people call us affect us. Instead, the person that we should be worried about calling us names is God. We do not want God calling us rebellious and wicked because we have given in to enemies and been intimidated by them and have denied Jesus Christ because of fear of what they will do to us. Who cares if they call you rebellious and wicked if God calls you righteous and faithful and friend and even child, son and daughter? They're the names you want from him. Don't worry about what other people call you if God calls you righteous and calls you one of his children. Third attack that they have is enemies attack by accusing God's people of criminal behaviour. That's my third main point. And we see this happening in verse 13. Verse 13 of Ezra chapter 4 Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are destroyed, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, if there's one way to get a king's attention, if there's one way to get a politician's attention, it's to say that people are cheating on their taxes and that money taxes are going to go down because of the actions of a particular group of people. And that is criminal behaviour that they're being accused of. To not pay your taxes is criminal activity. You are supposed to pay the taxes to those who are in authority over you. But God's people here are not doing that. 
They're, they're, they're law-abiding citizens. It's accusing them of future criminal behaviour that will happen if the king doesn't take action. But the Israelites haven't done anything like that. They're just simply accusing them of criminal behaviour in the future. There is no grounds for this. This is a total lie about the Israelites. And people still do this today. They accuse Christians of criminal activity or future criminal activity if they're allowed to prosper. They still do it today. They did it to Jesus Christ. They accused him of what? Rebellion against the empire. He claims to be a king. He opposes Caesar. He is a criminal. And they did it with Paul, that passage that we read from Acts. They said he is a troublemaker, one causing riots. He is against the state. They've been doing it with Christians for a long time, starting with Jesus, starting with the beginning of Christianity. And they still do it today. People will accuse us of criminal behaviour. People will accuse us of being rebellious, of reacting against laws in the land. They will say that we are people who are against the state, that we want the state and the church to be one, and that we should be dictating to everybody what will happen. And so they say if Christians get control, there will be no freedom in this land. Everybody will be forced to worship the Christian God. There will be no freedom of religion, which is not true. Freedom of religion has always come through Christianity becoming more dominant in the society. Christianity has always allowed others to worship their God. We promote freedom of religion. We promote people being law-abiding citizens of obeying the government and not breaking the law. Christians have a long history of being very good citizens and not going against the law. How do you resist this attack then? Well, you do what other Christians have been doing before you and don't break the law. Be law-abiding citizens. So they've got nothing on you. Yes, they may accuse you of future criminal behaviour, but at least they can't accuse you of being criminals right now. One of the ways you can bring immediate disgrace upon Christianity is when you break the law. But you should be a law-abiding citizen, so you uphold Christianity. And so they've got nothing on you when they attack. So when you are driving, you obey the laws that govern the land and the roads as you drive on them. And when the officer pulls you over, you pay respect to that officer. And you pay your fine if you've been speeding or run through a red light. You do not disobey the laws of the land and you pay your taxes so they can't accuse you of what is happening here. You do what you're told and don't break the laws of the land. That is how you resist this attack, is by being good, law-abiding citizens. And fourthly, another way that we see they attack God's people here is my fourth main point, enemies attacked by falsely contrasting God's people with themselves. And we see that in verse 14. Now, since we are under obligation, this is the enemy's writing, 
Since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonoured, we are sending this message to inform the king. They are making out there these wonderful law-abiding citizens who are in it for the king's name. It's not about them. They're not trying to protect themselves by opposing the Israelites here. It's all about the king's name. We are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonoured. It's all about the king's honour. Whereas these Israelites, they're not about the king's honour. They're under no obligation to the palace. They aren't law-abiding citizens at all. And so they're falsely contrasting God's people with themselves as though God's people are not good citizens. And people do this all the time still with Christianity. They go on about how great they are as non-Christians as though Christians are not good people at all. I was reading God Delusion by Richard Dawkins and of course he goes on for basically a whole chapter, pages after pages, about how wonderful atheists are and how law-abiding they are, how they are moral people because one of the great accusations against atheism is why would you be good if there is no God? And so he has to try and defend that and I think that is one of the strongest arguments against atheism is... Why would you be good? If you can get away with it, go against what, and do whatever you want. Whether it's criminal or not, not, just go for it. But of course he has to try and defend that. And so he goes on and on about how atheists are wonderful people. As though Christians never did anything helpful in society. But Christians have been very helpful in society, not just in obeying the laws, but actually being good citizens and promoting the society that they've lived in. They've always had a hand in helping our society. Christians have been involved in welfare, in looking after orphans who nobody wanted, starting orphanages, starting hospitals, trying to end the slave trade. Christians, William Wilberforce, one of the great Christians, was the spearhead in ending the slave trade in England. Christians have always been good citizens, not just law-abiding citizens, but ones who actually try and help society. There's one way to be a good citizen is to just not break any laws. But then there's another way to be a good citizen is not to break laws but also promote the society that you're in. Not just be in it for yourself all the time but actually try and help the society that you're in. And that's the way that we resist this attack. They accuse us of not being good citizens while they are. We should be good citizens. We should be praying for our politicians, praying for our police force, praying for the ambulance drivers, our doctors... We should be helping those who need our help. What does that mean? Giving to those who need our help. You are under no obligation as a citizen of this country to give to those who are starving, to give to those who do not have clothes, who do not have shelter. But you should. You should be promoting the good of this land by helping those in need by looking for needs that will promote this society and then fulfilling those, not because you're obligated to by the law of the land, but because you are a good citizen. Help in whatever way you can. Even give blood. 
I was listening to an atheist program and they were talking about how they do blood drives. And that is something that is a good way to help out people in this land. Not everyone can, so you're under no obligation to. They may reject your blood because you spend some time in England and may have mad cow disease. But if you don't have that possibility, go along and give some blood. Contribute. You save lives. You're under no obligation to do it, but you can help save lives. And as a good Christian, you should be doing that to show that you support this land and are not what these atheists, these enemies of Christianity, would accuse you of. So that's the fourth attack. The fifth one, enemies attack God's people by creating guilt by association. Creating guilt by association. And we see this in verse 15. I'll read from verse 14, though. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonoured, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. So now they're encouraging the king to do a search of the records and see what Jerusalem has been up to in the past. And it is true. Jerusalem was a rebellious city, troublesome to kings. It wanted its own. It didn't want anyone to rule over it. It wanted to be in power and have its own king. And so when other people came, it rebelled. And when Babylon would put somebody in charge, they rebelled again and again. But does that mean that the children are rebels against the king now? No. Just because their parents were rebels and their grandparents and their great-grandparents were rebels doesn't mean that they are rebels. And this is a wonderful tactic that enemies love to use, guilt by association. If you're close to someone, then you must be guilty as well. They still do it today. They create guilt by association. And so when someone calls himself a Christian and does something terrible, the enemies attack. They say, look what Christians do. A Norwegian terrorist goes and kills a bunch of people and says he's a Christian, and they say that's what Christianity does. And so the whole of Christianity is implicated because of one individual's horrible actions. And it's not true. It's creating guilt by association. And so if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I want to encourage you, don't simply take Christianity for what Christians say it is. I want to encourage you to go to the person who started Christianity and find out what he teaches about Christianity. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He's the one who started Christianity. He is the one who can tell you what Christians do. And you find out about him in the pages of the Bible. Start reading and find out what he says. And you will see he is not someone who condones such activity. He is one who holds people to a high ethical code. And he is the one who encourages you how to truly be a Christian. And that is through repentance and faith through admitting you're sorry for your sins and trusting in his death for you. And if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you to resist this attack by 
distancing yourself from people who call themselves Christians but behave in a terrible way, who are rebellious, who are criminals. Distance yourself from such people. One way you distance yourself from such people is by church discipline. If a member in our church, including me, engages in criminal activity, you exclude me from the church right there and then. You have a church meeting and you discipline me. Distance yourself from me and say, that is not Christian behaviour. And you distance yourself from people in your own friendship circles. If people around you are engaging in evil activity, don't be friends with them. It will start to rub off on you that you might start to go in that way and people will have an accusation like these enemies did and be able to create guilt by association. They'll be able to say, you know that Christian who goes to Des Moines Baptist Church? Well, he's friends with so-and-so and the link is there and it's done. And Christianity has a bad name just because of who you're friends with and what they're up to. People still use that attack today and you need to resist it by being careful who you associate with. And then sixth, the last attack, is enemies attack God's people by using exaggeration. And we see that in verse 16. Verse 16. We, that's the enemies, inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. In this whole region, there will be nothing that is serving King Artaxerxes anymore. It's a complete exaggeration because if it means that there's nothing in trans-Euphrates, who does that include? It includes them. All of these people that are listed back there in verse 9. Riam, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and officials, over the men from Tripolis, Persia, Erech and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honourable Asher Benopal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. They're saying that if you let the Jews go on like this, we will rebel as well. Everybody will be rebelling against you. It's a complete exaggeration. But people still do that today as well. They still attack in that way. They will exaggerate what Christians are doing and make out that it's a lot worse than what is the actual truth. I was listening to, as I said before, this atheist radio talkback program that I I tried listening to over the internet. And they keep going on about Christians are against reproductive rights reproductive rights what do they mean they mean we're against abortion but what do they do they don't say we're against abortion they say we're against reproductive rights as though we're against all rights of anyone to have a say in their reproduction they cloud the issue they exaggerate the issue rather than saying we're against abortion they say They're against reproductive rights. And how else do they talk about it? We talk about it being pro-life and pro-choice. So it's all about women's rights then, isn't it? Christians, they're against women having human rights. They're against women having choices. Pro-choice. It starts to cloud the issue. They exaggerate. And so we're seen to be evil people who are against people reproducing or having a say in what they do in reproducing. Whereas I say we are about reproductive rights 
and we're about the rights of that embryo to grow up and reproduce as well. We are really concerned about everybody in the act of reproduction. But they cloud the issue, they exaggerate, and they do that in whole other ways. They always are going on about homosexual marriage and how we don't want people to love one another. We're not concerned about people who are in loving, committed relationships. That We don't acknowledge that people can love other people. That we want to divide people. No, it's not true. We know that people have a love and affection for other people. We just think that traditional marriage is reserved for men and women. That's the way God has instituted it. We're not about people having love for others. So they cloud the issue. They say that we're against love. And we're not at all. We want love to be the way that God designed love to be. So we've seen how God's enemies will attack us. Are you prepared to resist these attacks? Are you not afraid of powerful groups of enemies as they come against you? Are you not afraid of the names that enemies will call you? Do you keep well away from criminal behaviour and obey the laws of this land? Do you also show active support for your country and are a good citizen, but not just keeping the laws, but also promoting common good in your country and in other lands? Do you distance yourself from evildoers so there can be no guilt by association? And do you not worry about exaggerations? Because when they come against you with the exaggerations, you know that God knows the truth and that you have nothing to fear. Let us speak with our God now. Heavenly Father, we do recognise that we do have enemies and they are your enemies, and they attack us as they attack you. They've been attacking you since the time of Ezra and even before that, and they're still attacking you and your people today. Lord, we pray that we may resist such attacks, that we may not fear man and what they can do to us, but we may only fear you, the living God. Lord, we pray that we may live good lives, holy lives, righteous lives, so that their attacks do not have any value. They have no evidence against us. And Lord, we pray that you may reduce these attacks of enemies against us. We thank you that in Australia, people have very little power against us, and that is your grace. We pray that they may continue to be the case, that there may be freedom for us in this land, and that we may continue to withstand those attacks that we have. And we do pray for our brothers and sisters in other countries that see these attacks in a much more powerful way. We pray that you may give them the strength to stand firm and they may not deny the faith, but may stand firm and honour you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.